AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says order, design, composition, tone, form, symmetry, balance. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So in our last podcast, we talked about 3D printing and art. Yes. And I thought in this podcast, we should back out a little bit and okay. look more generally at the relationship between technology and art, because that's something that isn't always totally intuitive to people. And in fact, I think some people kind of don't like it, right? They, they have this low tech view of what art should be. Oh, sure. Uh, in fact, I think we could probably posit that 
Angry Joe might say that technology shouldn't be involved in art at all, that it should be the way that it has always been, that it, it should never be produced any differently. Right. Sure. Well, Lauren's talking about the angry Joe from the last podcast, the guy who wants things to be how they've always been. Right. That would resist anything beyond, say, painting and sculpture. That is art. That is all art is. And only if it is done in the traditional way, whatever school of art you happen to follow, that is all that can be allowed into art with a capital A. Well, I want to tell y'all a story. Oh, please that's do. It's kind of interesting to me about uh, an event in the history of art. Have you ever seen a painting called Nude Descending a Staircase Number 2 by Duchamp? Oh, yes. yeah. Okay, so it was Marcel Duchamp's uh, painting, and it's – how would you describe it? Um, I would describe it as being kind of this uh, – you know, it's it, – if you don't know what the title of the painting is – you don't know what you're looking at. Yeah. I think, but once you know the title, if you're standing at the right distance, you can totally see what was trying to be captured, which is this idea of movement, right? You've got these, these shapes and colors and lines that are... They're, uh, they're evocative of someone walking across the frame. Yeah, it's it's vaguely earth-toned throughout in varying shades, and then it's got these intersecting lines and strange shapes. It, it's very abstract, um, but when you attach the title to it, yeah, you can definitely see the blur of motion in it. Right. Something that looks like uh, someone passing through the darkness. So this got universal acclaim, right? No, it, actually it didn't. It was very divisive when it came out. So in 19... Vulcans hated it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> in 1913, there was an art show in New York called The Armory Show. Okay. And this is kind of a famous event in, in transatlantic art history because what was going on at the Armory Show is a lot of the European paintings were being showed off to an American audience. Okay. And so th there were differing views about a lot of the different things at the show, but Nude Descending a Staircase Number Two by Duchamp was one of the most divisive. It got some very negative reactions from people. One critic said that it looked like, quote, an explosion in a shingle factory. Oh, my which, goodness. <laughs> um, Teddy Roosevelt, actually, the, like the former president, Teddy Roosevelt panned it. He compared the painting to a rug that he had hanging up in his bathroom. Yeah. Uh, unfavorably. Yeah, unfavorably. Yeah, he, he said, said that the, the rug was a better piece of art. A better representation <laughs> of, an, uh, as he called it, I think, a nude man going down the stairs. going Descending a ladder or something like that. Yeah, he also said. talked about going up a ladder, a clothed man going oh, up a ladder. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but, so a lot of people were just like, oh, what is this? I don't like it. I don't like the way it looks. It doesn't look like a nude descending a staircase. I, It's no this good. This is dumb. Yeah. Um, now it is widely considered a very important and meaningful work of art that's highly respected by a lot of people. What happened? Well, I mean, one thing is it has sort of faded to the background now and it's sort of part of the, it's the old school now. And there's yeah. plenty of new things for people to say. To be that, angry ah, about. That's not art. <laughs> right. Oh, right, sure. And also we can kind of see it in a perspective of time where it fits. It's easier once we get a little bit removed from the current moment, I think. But. Yeah. Sure. And it wasn't just that people were rejecting abstract art in general. They weren't necessarily like there were abstract art schools that didn't like this painting because it didn't fit what they thought the, you know, the school should be. Uh, but in any case... I wanted to talk about something that I found interesting about this painting, which is that it was actually inspired by something that came before it. Not necessarily something artistic, but something technological. 
And what would that be? The advent of early film, chronophotography, uh, the moving pictures. Uh, so okay. the early films people made in like the, the decades that came before this were not narratives yet, usually. Uh, oh, right. They were just short little scenes, uh, like a horse running. Or like a naked person coming down a flight of stairs. Mm. So and we, we so, call that Tuesday morning at my house. Uh, yes. Uh, new Jonathan descending a staircase number two was not quite as big a hit. <laughs> as, Never has been. Uh, as regular nude descending a staircase. Mm. But yeah, so what was going on in this painting was that Duchamp was trying to capture the motion that was available in this new form of art, the, you know, the technological form, the moving film, how the motion appeared on the screen there. Could he put it in a frame? And that's sort and of he what he did. Kind yeah. of did, yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, once you, you know, we being more familiar with film as a medium can sort of see what he was trying to capture a little more easily, I think, than the audience that saw it way back when. Mm -hmm. I think this is a great example of the positive relationship between technology and art and sort of a rebuke to those people who say, no, Art is old school. It should be low tech. It's, you know, chisel or paintbrush and, and that's it there. I think that is wrong. Yeah. I think that there is a positive feedback loop of inspiration between technology and art. They feed off of each other. They inspire each other. And that this is a great example. Uh, they make each other possible in certain ways. I mean, we should all also keep in mind that without materials science throughout the ages, we would certainly not have the colors of paints that we do today. Oh, totally. For for, for example, um, chemistry, or by the time that we started getting into the actual manufacture of man-made solvents or bases or fillers or additives or pigments, uh, the creation of plastics hugely drove new directions in the painting uh, artistic industry and, and also just pure mechanical or industrial means of, of grinding and mixing all of these components together uh, led to uh, colors and types and affordability that we would not have gotten without those materials technologies. Um, of course, you also have some safety issues here and there related to this. Uh, many paint pigments are and always have been made from ground metals or metallic salts. We just talked a little bit about that in a tech stuff episode yeah. about fireworks, actually. Yep. Um, but, uh, for example, lead used to be used to create white pigments until, uh, I mean, basically until everyone figured out how terrible of an idea lead <laughs> is. Um, and, and also began caring enough about their paint manufacturers to present alternatives like titanium dioxide or zinc oxide to create white paints. Yeah, that's a great point. Or what about something that I think is widely accepted in the art world today, which is just photography. Yes. Yeah, I mean, at one time, this was brand new technology. And it wasn't widely accepted at all when it when it first came about and became more popular than just a couple of people experimenting with a chemical process to transfer light onto a physical film. Uh, which is, you know, that's the process of photography, right? Oh, sure. But it was considered kind of too real to, to be artistic, right? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was considered that. And the fact that it wasn't, it was a mechanical and chemical process, not something that was handcrafted to create the image. So, oh, <laughs> for anyone who's developed photos, yeah, you get your hands in that really, yeah. <laughs> really hard. But... It's true, but you you only you okay, only move yeah. something from one chemical to another chemical until you're done. Uh, now, the way that uh, this all comes about is that you had this this drive during the Renaissance to create ever more realistic art. So that you are representing what the human eye can see as faithfully as you possibly can. 
this was something that kind of consumed a lot of artists. They all wanted to be the best at the representation of what is real. Oh, we got into detail and perspective and all kinds of very intricate little line work and stuff like that. Right, making sure proportions are accurate at the distance that you are at and that you are really capturing something as it is and not just some sort of idealistic version of it. Uh, well, photography, of course, is kind of the 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 ultimate approach to that, at least in a two-dimensional format. And we talked plenty about three-dimensional in our last episode. But in a two-dimensional format, you know, capturing something by the light that is reflected off of the scene is about as close to what we, the human uh, the humans who are looking at it are going to get, right? So in that sense, it very much appealed to people. In fact, it, it started to become, once the, the process became uh, affordable, it became something that would replace other means of creating uh, illustrations, wood cuttings, that kind of stuff, because that's expensive and time-consuming to produce. Whereas if you are able to take a photograph, even if it takes an hour or two hours for you to be able to take a photograph, that's still way faster than the artistic approach. So I can see how it would easily replace something like uh, kind of the low-rent portraiture you might get in sure. the old days. Or, but... or even illustrations in, say, uh, a publication. Sure, okay. But what about fine art? I mean, did, did it rival the kind of art that would be produced by a great painter or there something? Were, there was a great resistance to it early on. And you had essentially three camps of thought. You had one that said it has no place in art whatsoever. You had people who said um, it could be really useful for artists because the artists could actually use the photograph as a reference point when making their own art. So in other words, it's just a step between... It's a good tool for creating real art. Yeah, so so instead <laughs> of having to have the painter stand out in the field in order to get the field just right, you just send a photographer out there to take a portrait picture of the field, and then the, the portraiture artist, they just or whatever, the actually landscape, I guess, instead. The landscape artist can just take a look at the picture as the reference point and make the painting that way. Uh, and then there was a third very small group of people who said... You know, I, I think photographs could be art all on their own. Um, and they were they were shouted down pretty much early, early on. Uh, it didn't take too long for people to really start making a serious push for uh, proclaiming that art, that, that photographs can actually be considered art. Um, for example, there was uh, Louis Figuière who said back in 1859, until now, the artist has had the brush, the pencil, and the burin. Now, in addition, he has the pho photographic lens. The lens is an instrument like the pencil and dye brush, and photography is a process like engraving and drawing. For what makes an artist is not the process, but the feeling. Which, I think, sums up kind of my philosophy. The idea that if someone is using uh, any kind of particular process to express some sort of thought or emotion... That is more what I think of as art than whatever the actual process was. Well, yeah, I don't even know exactly which one he meant in the original quote, but there's another way of looking that, at that, which is that it's about the feeling it creates in the audience or mm -hmm. the viewer more than how it was created. Mm -hmm. Although there was some argument at the time that um, since it was a mechanical process, that it was almost like if a, like if a textile mill was creating a, a very beautiful weaving yeah. that it was still somehow cold and mechanical in nature because it was created by a machine and not a person. Right. It was, it was manufactured as right. opposed to created artistically. And I would put in at this point that um, one of my 
angry Lauren moments was when the switchover from film to digital photography occurred. And I was like, well, a digital photograph is never going to look as warm and beautiful <laughs> as a film photograph uh, because it's just it's missing that quality. Oh, you know, I was actually with you there. I, I have a soft spot for film. I, I like film. I like film in films, too. So in <laughs> right, other words, yeah. yeah there, and, and we see this like even from just a consumer perspective. We see consumers who might resist a digital movie as opposed to a movie that was shot and projected on film. Uh, although you're really going to have to struggle to find huh. real film projectors in this day and sure. age. Uh, th- though I do. I mean, like like we all in this room, you know, having been born into a time when Stanley Kubrick or Ansel Adams or any of the other kind of visionaries of filmic mediums have, have already been doing work. George Lucas. We... Of course, uh, we we all accept this as being art and perhaps I, I mean, most definitely even fine art. But I can I can see where previous generations would have been resistant to it. Yeah. So we accept photography now. But what's the next thing? I mean, what's going on now? We we talked in another podcast about 3D printing in the art world. Yep. But I think we should talk more about this world we're creating where art, science, technology, and design are very much merging. They're, the lines between them are blurring in a lot of instances. And I think this is actually a really cool thing. I don't think it's art being diluted. I mean, obviously, there are still people who make sculptures and paintings in a traditional way today. Sure. I really like the way that technology and art and science and design are becoming this strange other category of creation. I don't even know what you call it. Yeah. But. Well, I mean, they're they're. I think of it in some ways that you can think of, uh, you know, art, design, technology, science. You can think of that all of these things are part of what is humanity, right? These are all aspects of humanity and there's overlap in different categories. There's some Art that overlaps with technology or science. Yeah, uh, components of a larger culture. Yeah, so you can't, I mean, I wouldn't say that any one piece was necessarily uh, an example of pure art or pure technology. There are always going to be some other elements of these other parts of what it is to be human that spill over into that. You see that at some really big events like uh, the Burning Man Festival or Maker Fairs where mm-hmm. you have these examples of things. Some of them are practical. Some of them are not practical. Some of them are meant for entertainment. Some of them are meant for performance. Some of them are just meant to make you think or feel something. And you might look at any two exhibits or or examples of stuff that people have created at one of these events and have very different reactions. And one, you might have just a purely intellectual reaction of, that is really interesting and I wonder how they did it. Another one might affect you emotionally. And they're going to fall on different scales for each person about whether or not it feels like it's art or maybe just art informed the creation of that piece. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that to say one is art and one is not art in some sort of weird, um, you know, uh, subjective definition is not terribly helpful. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's very little about art that is absolutely objective. So, yeah, this also reminds me of a, a particular byproduct of technology that can be a form of art. Uh, some artists create these very beautiful uh, stones, stones kind of in quotation marks there, called Fordite or Detroit Agate. And they're, <laughs> I know, right? Like uh, Texas gold. Um, they, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're created from, from layers upon layers of automotive paint that have been reclaimed from factories. It also reminds me of, I used to have here at the office a little piece 
of um, what looked like obsidian glass. And it was actually a piece of, uh, of waste from a plasma waste converter. Oh, wow. Because their plasma waste converters can create two different types of, of waste. One of them is a gas, which mm-hmm. can be used to create syngas, which you can then use as a fuel. And the other is this, this, uh, non-organic molten mass that when it cools looks like volcanic rock. And I could easily imagine using that to create an artistic, uh, you know, expression of some sort, some kind of sculpture or whatever. If you wanted to, you could actually use that. And that would be an interesting artistic expression to say, ultimately, the material that I used to create this came from a landfill. Like literally the landfill provided the raw material that I used to make this sculpture. And it doesn't, well, it doesn't look necessarily like that. And of course there are artists who use. Yeah. I mean, that's a, there's a grand tradition of using reclaimed objects to, to make into pieces of art. Sure. I, I want to talk about something that Jonathan, I think you actually have written a good deal about yeah. in the past, which is a really interesting project in my mind. It's called the Avatar Machine. Uh, this is a fun one. So the Avatar Machine was this project that uh, the goal of the project was to find out what it would be like to view yourself from the third person perspective as if you were playing a uh, an MMO like World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. uh, but you were the character and everything you did was translated in real time to the view you had. But you had to have a view of yourself as a third person character. Now, typically in those MMOs, your view is a third person view where you're behind and slightly above mm-hmm. the character. So it's like you're about, you know, two or three feet over the character's head and behind the character so that you get a good view of what is in front of and a little bit to either side of that character. So how do you manage that if you wanted to make a, uh, you know, a real life version? Well, if you're Mark Owens, what you do is you build a harness and the harness holds a camera that is mounted about two feet above and behind the person who's wearing the, this, the suit. And then, uh, the feed from the camera goes directly into a monitor that's inside a helmet. And when you wear the helmet, your vision is blocked except for what is on the monitor. So you can only see the view from the monitor. You can't see the world around you otherwise. So with a live video feed coming from the camera, you see yourself from the third person. Uh, you see as if your view is hovering above and behind yourself. And then you try and wander around. And this artistic uh, experiment, you might say. Yeah, it's it's hard to know even what to call it. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was, it was definitely, uh, you know, Mark Owens is, is pretty well known for experimenting with different kinds of technology and art. But this particular one, he was exploring how people behave when they are viewing themselves from the third person. Do, do their sense of ethics change? Yeah. Do they, do they feel a still, do they still feel as connected to their actions? You have responsibility for your behavior. Right. If you walked up to, say, a small child and pushed over the small child, uh, wearing this avatar machine, would you actually feel like, you know, well, do, like you do, were personally responsible I, for it? I sound like you're speaking from experience. <laughs> I'm just saying from what I've, the, the videos I viewed, not that I saw a video of Mark Owens pushing over a small child, but that's just what Jonathan would do if you were wearing it. Well, he, he specifically said that it kind of creates this sense of detachment. Yeah. Right, right. And also he said the other thing was that because the, the, the costume he made, cause he, he didn't just do a, a simple, you know, boring helmet and a harness. He made a full costume for this thing. And the costume included uh, these these spikes on the helmet that look like a spiky hair. 
And the, the costume included like these kind of big shoulder pads and stuff so that it made you look like a, a big old brawny character from World of Warcraft. Huh. He said that people who would wear it would invariably start swinging their arms wide and kind of adding swagger to their, their walk so that they're <laughs> essentially adopting the kind of walk you would see in one of these games. It's like they became uh, a different, different uh, entity than the, they would if they were just walking around as themselves. If sure. I, if I put that on, what I'd try to do is like keep glitching until I'm a hundred feet in the air <laughs> and, and I'm stuck there. Right. Yeah. Or you yeah. like you take take one wrong step on a on a staircase and suddenly fly five hundred feet straight up in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, well, that fortunately did not happen. If you want to see what this looks like, there's a video of it on the uh, on the MoMA uh, site actually, the yeah. Museum of Modern Art. So if you just Google like MoMA Avatar Machine, you can find this video. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But the thing that I was really interested in in the video, uh, it was it was actually kind of weird to talk about. But it was this idea of devices that were designed to harm themselves. The suicide machines. I found these things very strangely sad yeah. and beautiful, actually. They're, they're, they're very dynamic, but very upsetting. Yeah, so I don't know what to call them again. It's obviously a work of art. Yep. It's, they're machines. They're working machines with motors. Um, and what the machines do is kill themselves. Yep. So there is, it's referred to as sort of a kind of industrial art. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but I think it's Tyus Riker. And this artist created these machines. So there's one of them that has an arm that is operated by a motor, and the arm is attached to five saw blades, which slowly work back and forth on the outside of the gearbox, working their way down into the gearbox. So oh, no. eventually would end up sawing into itself to the point where it would no longer the gears be operational. Wouldn't work. Right. right. There's another one that when turned on begins to pour sand into its own gearbox and as the sand builds up that provides resistance against the gears until the machine finally stops working. Uh they they literally are suicide machines. They they perform no function except self-destruction. And there is something really profound I found about watching these videos. Again, you can go look them up if you just Google them. Uh, it, they they had an effect on me, like a like a good piece of art would. But what do you call them? They're yeah. they're machines. They're they're you you view them through video because I guess eventually. They wouldn't work anymore. Yeah, it's it's yeah. really only a one-time sort of installation. <laughs> it's it's uh, a great trick, but you can only do it once. Huh. Well, it actually reminds me a little bit of a a device that uh, the founder of information theory, Claude Shannon, built called the Ultimate Machine. Right. Have you ever seen the Ultimate Machine? I don't think so. Here's what the Ultimate Machine is. Imagine that you have a little box, and the box has a little trap door in it, and it also has a little switch. And whenever you flip the switch, the trap door opens and a hand comes out and pushes the switch to the off position and then retreats back into the box and the trap door closes. And that is all the machine does. So if you try to turn the machine on, it turns itself back off over and over and over again. Now, Claude Shannon, brilliant man, founder of information theory. He's the reason why we have the com computers working the way they do. Uh, from a theoretical perspective. And he also just really loved to build weird stuff. People have gone on to make other versions of the uh, ultimate machine that do other things. One of my favorites has it where if you if you hit the switch enough times, the trapdoor comes up and a little white flag comes up out of the trapdoor <laughs> and surrenders. Aww. And then it finally turns the switch back off again. So it's it's one of those things where, again, it's 
in that case, it, the purpose is for amusement, right? Mm-hmm. The only thing there is for you to really get a laugh out of this experience. But it is that that you do have that emotional response. You might not call that fine art, but it certainly is technology that evokes an emotional reaction. Oh, well, I I wouldn't want to necessarily write something off and say it's not art just because the emotion it produces is humor and absurdity. Sure. Uh, Like we were talking about Duchamp earlier. How about a Mona Lisa with a mustache? Oh, sure. I mean, some people would look at that and say this actually meant something at the time it was produced. Or, Or a telephone in the shape of a lobster. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is something joyful and absurd about it. M- maybe some people might say, oh, you know, that's just kind of a goof. But I don't know. I, I like a good goof. I can yeah. see that as art. So how about this next one then on the list? Uh, because I think that fits right in. I want you to imagine yourself in a scenario. Okay. Uh, so you're, Any scenario? You're, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. No, <laughs> I'm going to describe it. Okay. Oh. All right. We're, we're limited here. wandering around in a lonely bus station late at night. I just... Your regular Wednesday night. And you come around a corner and suddenly you're staring at a large black ball hovering in front of your face and making noises at you. Okay. Every other Wednesday night. The noises might be the sound of echoing footsteps. We're down to once a month now. Little voices talking far away in the distance. You are specifically describing a nightmare. Um, (laughs) Like this is this could easily be in any ghost movie no this is actually also a work of uh technology art and design blurring together it's called space replay you can google this also to see videos of it it was a project created by francesco tacchini julinka ebhard and will yates johnson it is a three foot wide black balloon the balloon material is nylon and it floats it's uh filled with a mixture of oxygen and helium to the point where it achieves neutral buoyancy so it doesn't go up or down really it just, just kind of hovers yeah it just holds air. its place uh and of course like obviously if there's wind gusts or something it'll just follow them around And inside are electronic components that record ambient noise and then play it back on a delay. So the effect you get is a hovering black ball that plays a delayed tape loop of the ambient sounds of existence. So so essentially what you could end up hearing is walking through, say, a subway tunnel or or like a a tunnel that leads to the subway station um, and this black orb is floating in there and you're the only person there and meanwhile you're hearing little children laughing and then you never go to sleep again. <laughs> exactly, because there were some kids in there just a minute ago and it recorded them. Yeah, uh, I think this is this is great. I love it. It's not emotionally affecting necessarily, but I, I think it's just brilliantly absurd and really interesting. I, I would call that very emotionally affecting. If I ran into that thing, I would be emotionally affected. Yeah, terror is an emotion. So. I, yeah. <laughs> well, to see the terror yourself, look up the videos. It's called Space Replay. Yeah, I actually did watch one of the videos. Now, the videos mostly show people being, you know, very nonchalant as they walk by this thing. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to me, who'd be like, what the hell is that? So, uh, yeah, but it, it is a really interesting, uh, example. Another one that I wanted to talk about is actually a full exhibition. It wasn't just one piece of art. All the different pieces of art in this I found really interesting. The exhibition was called Trace Recordings, Surveillance and Identity in the 21st Century. And it was an exhibit at UTS Gallery in Australia. And it was all about surveillance and incorporating elements of surveillance into the art itself. Now, some of them were traditional pieces of art, like there was a, a photograph 
of an NSA listening station in the middle of this uh, area that in the United States is off limits for radio uh, broadcasts because it's meant to allow radio telescopes to operate without interference. And the NSA is there to listen to stuff that bounces off the moon. And uh, so it's just a photograph of that place and just kind of a reminder of, you know, this is interesting that they're listening they're to listening. signals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But beyond that were some really cool examples like uh, Paolo Sirio's Street Ghosts, which took pictures of people that uh, that showed up on Google Street View, printed out the pictures in real life size and then posted them in the physical locations where they had appeared on Street View. So you'll see like these tunnels where people had been walking by oh, on a wow. tunnel and and their pictures have been pasted up and uh, exactly where they had been in the in the Google Street View photo. Uh, there was another one, uh, Benjamin Gallon's 2.4 gigahertz, which was an art exhibit that consisted of a portable monitor and antenna. You could walk around with this thing through the streets of Australia and pick up unsecured CCTV cameras. So you could actually see live video feeds from cameras that had not been uh, placed under any kind of, of lockdown of security. And again, it was just to kind of give you this uh, this whole idea of surveillance and what it means. You know, I, I can't really say what the artist intended. Obviously, uh, that that belongs to the artist, but it sure. certainly certainly raised awareness of how much surveillance there is mm-hmm. and how little of it is controlled. There was another one called Stranger Visions <laughs> by Heather Dewey Hagborg, and it, it featured 3D printed portraits, quote, based on genetic material taken from public places, end quote. What? Like a bench, you know, or something. You take some genetic material, you figure out what the person would probably look like, and then you print out a, a three-dimensional face and mount it on the wall, and it's not at all creepy. I, I for the record, think that that one was... um more art than science. I I don't think that you can actually get recreate someone's what face someone's face is just based on from genetic material. A hair or I don't know. Well, you could skin you, you might be able to you might be able to guess you might be able to guess certain things like certain general demographics. But beyond that, I doubt that you could get to. You wouldn't be able to get any any specifics. Um, but it would be really general, and so you, it was a lot of artistic license there. But then you then there was also um, memory, which was a digital frame that included a camera inside of it. The camera would take images of the people looking at the portrait and then incorporate their faces into an uh, amalgamation of all the faces it had ever seen. Oh, wow. So so the more people who saw it, the more generic the face would become. There was also one called Descriptive Camera, which might be my favorite one, which was by Matt Richardson. So this is a camera that when you took a picture of something, it would give you a little printout receipt that described what it was that you took a picture of rather than a picture. <laughs> what? So like, let's say I've got a camera and I point it at you, Joe, right now, and I take a picture. After a couple of minutes, I would get a printed receipt that would say there's a man sitting in front of a microphone with headphones on. And maybe it might go into more detail, like tell me what color shirt you're wearing or what color eyes you have. The way this actually worked was that it did capture an image. But it would upload that to a web service that used humans to analyze stuff. <laughs> That's cheating. And they, but no, 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 it's not. Because then the humans have to describe what they see and then send it back. And then you get a printout of what was seen. That's great. So imagine it. it what, what the, the picture you would get would be through the eye of the analyst. So it wouldn't wow. necessarily be a perfect representation of what you pointed the camera at. It would be the way someone would communicate that the mm-hmm. best way they knew how and the most accurate way they knew how. So it could be really interesting to see in a way you could kind of see how this other person views the world based on the pictures you took. 
And of course, you can't guarantee that it's always going to the same analyst. So you can't even really get a full grip that this one person sees the world in a very specific way based upon the descriptions that come back. But I thought that was a really cool idea. Uh, some of my favorite things that I've seen are interactive art installations that have played with the concept of the cloud. Um, there, there's one that's just really kitschy. That's a that's a motion based thundercloud. It, it takes any motion from inside the room and 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 integrates that that data into what it's how it's flashing and making noise. But uh, but but a but a bigger one. There was a sculptural piece with these lighting and motor elements called the capacitor by one John Grade mm. that that moves and brightens and dims. I, I mean, and this is a huge thing, like like giant room size that you can walk around inside. Um, but but all of its movement and, and lights are based on a mix of historical weather data and live input from sensors on the roof of the uh, Kohler Art Center in Wisconsin, where it's installed. And the more that the current data differs from the historical data, the, the greater the shifts in movement and light as you're walking through the installation. That's pretty awesome. And then, you know, you we, again, with the Maker Fair stuff where I said that art informs design, which informs technology, and all, all of these things have this kind of uh, uh, symbiotic relationship with each other. That's also in in full uh, display for things like like products. You know, the the design of products incorporate aesthetics, and you might argue, all right, so uh, like Sir Johnny Ive, who who does design at Apple. You know, you would say that Apple is one of those companies that really has a, a great grasp on the concept of design. You might say that Sir Johnny Ive is an artist. Uh, now, you might argue that the art that he creates are the the actual designs that all the products are based off of and not the products themselves. I don't have a problem with that necessarily. But you definitely have to say that art at least informs the decisions. That's part of the reason why Apple products have such a strong appeal. Uh, and design in the Apple sense incorporates more than just the physical appearance of one of their products. It also incorporates how it works. So oh, the actual sure. the actual uh, interface and how that interacts with the user is all part of that design. And again, it all comes back to certain concepts that are very fundamental in creating art. Oh, yeah. You could certainly say the same for the teams that design especially high-end cars. Sure. they're I mean, they're gorgeous, but they're very functional. And then there's... Uh, the video game debate, like video games, are they art? We don't have time to get into that today. But <laughs> yeah, that, we that's can do a whole a separate episode, episode yeah. certainly. Um, although I do want to put in that the Museum of Modern Art has been collecting video game pieces, um, and, and displaying them over the past few years. So that I'd, I'd say that that makes it a little bit official. I think we all agree that Frankenstein through the eyes of the monster is fine art, and Tim Curry's performance needs to be preserved forever. I would say all of the cutscenes in the whole Command and Conquer series are <laughs> fine. Fine art. That also involves Tim Curry. In yeah, Tim, Alert 3. Tim Curry, <laughs> I think, I think is what we're saying. Tim Curry himself is fine art. Yes, he is. Uh, uh, Mr. Curry, we salute you. Okay, so I have another place I want to go with this. Okay. It, it, robots. Have, oh, robots, not, robots, not Tim Curry. I was going to say, is it more? Robots. Okay, well, let's talk about robots. Um, so, first of all, they've been used in, in artistic installations, uh, there's one made by a uh, Shang Huan who opened an art installation in Shanghai back in 2012 that uh, had a couple of robotic or animatronic figures. Uh, robotic might be a little 
might be a little generous. I would consider them more animatronic than robotic, but they were both uh, uh, you know, mechanical versions of Confucius. One of them was a full figure of Confucius that was inside a cage that would thrash around wildly, uh, and live monkeys were also in the cage. So I'm sure that was an interesting experience. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's if you watch video of this, it's very... Like, it's pretty violent kind of thrashing. And it, it was supposed to sort of, at least from what the interpretations I've heard, it's supposed to kind of give an indication of the state of China and uh, and, it's, oh, wow. and especially how it pertained to spirituality. Uh, but then there was also a, a an incredibly huge Confucius that was um, sitting in a uh, a large pool that was essentially like a bathtub. So just think of a Confucius that's maybe, I don't know, uh, two and a half stories tall, but you only see him from the chest up sitting in this pool as if it's a bath. And he was snoring. <laughs> that was the other robotic. Okay. Uh, then there's uh, Jordan Wolfson's robotic female dancer. Which oh, stop. Might be the creepiest <laughs> thing in the world. I, I still can't. Uh, they they um, my, my best description. If you have not seen this video, I cannot necessarily recommend watching it because it will haunt your waking dreams forever. Um, But but it sort of reminds me of like a like a broken model of a Bioshock character if it was dancing really hard. Yeah. I like that you're trying to do the dance while you're talking <laughs> into the microphone, Lauren. That's, yeah. and that's, uh, that's for the benefit of everyone who's watching us right now. Yeah. To, to be fair, I get the sense that it wasn't, it's not like it was supposed to be real cute and friendly. Oh, certainly I think not. It, no. I think that there is something uh, sinister being communicated. So in order to describe this, let's, 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 explain what this is. So you've got a, a female figure, life-sized female figure, uh, dressed in a white outfit that uh, you would normally consider to be a kind of a sexy outfit, a right? A sexy lady dancing outfit, yeah. yeah. Uh, she, the the robotic figure has, has uh, realistic-looking skin uh, that is smudged in quite a few places um, and is wearing uh, a long gloves as well as this, this sexy little outfit. Uh, she's also wearing a mask that covers the upper half of her face, has a long, deformed nose, and is kind of green and, and bumpy slash scaly looking. So very, like very, very monstrous. Yeah, deformed looking, and uh, and the she dances to songs that have been purposefully distorted, like uh, Blurred Lines was one of the songs. In fact, that was the one that was playing in the video. Which is already disturbing enough. Yeah, so. and, it, and it was hard to tell what the song was at first. It takes a while before the, the lyrics start kicking in and you start realizing what song this is. And, you know, again, I don't wish to project my own, uh, my own opinions upon the artist's uh, intention, but the feeling I got was that this was kind of a, a commentary on... Uh, sexualization in general. And it was, I mean, it's really disturbing. You start looking at, because the, the motions are very, they look very lifelike, but the appearance is grotesque. And the the distorted music adds to it, as well as the fact that the robot is lip syncing along with some of the songs and also appears to look at people as they get closer and their and the gaze from the robot will remain on that person. Uh, right, right. It'll track yeah. uh, a person around a room. So if you start moving, it, the, the robot is dancing facing a mirror and actually is being supported by a pole coming through the mirror into the robot's torso. But if you were to pass back and forth within the view of the robot, it would track you if you were close enough. Very, very unnerving. <laughs> um effective piece of art, I think. Well, uh, now that we've discussed some horrifying things, um, 
Well, let's talk about something delightful like robots that make art. Yeah. I think some of these things are really neat. A lot of them are uh, robots that can follow specific rules to recreate something. For example, there are robots that can uh, use cameras to look at a person and then sketch that person because the cameras can define where the edges of that person are. Okay. And then the robot arm kind of traces through that. But, uh, you know, again, it's following specific rules that a human has set up, an algorithm, right? Uh, there are other robots that can do things like carve using chainsaws, carve into wood and make a sculpture. But again, following a specific pattern set by a, um, an artist. This is kind of like our 3D printer discussion, except, of course, this would be subtractive rather than additive, right? You know, but it is following a specific program to make s- contours and cuts in such a way that you get the shape you want at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I, I would put in that just because you're creating a program that creates a piece of art, that doesn't mean that the outcome is not a piece of art or, or I don't know, maybe you would want to call the program the art rather than yeah, the end result. I, I just think my point is not so much whether or not the final product is art, but whether or not you call the robot an artist. I would say you don't because the robot is following the directions of the actual artist. Who right. Whoever set it up. It's a, it's a tool. Sure. Yeah. So, but but what know. if you create a robot that creates robots that make art? Then is the robot that created the robot the artist? The person who created the robot that created the robot artist is still the artist, I would say. Until you get to a point where the the I think you're a biochauvinist. No, no, no. When you get to a point where a robot can create something undirected by a person, uh, you know, in order for it to be whatever it might be, uh, then I would say that would be the robot would be an artist. But if the robot ultimately is directed by a person to do whatever it is it's needing to do, then I don't know that you can call it an artist. Well, okay, but I would just say that's sort of a, an issue of degrees, really, rather than a clear break, right? Because you're just talking about increasing levels of complexity and abstraction between the original programming and the final result, right? Like, you can have robots today, probably, that create, or not probably, I've seen it happen, there are robots today that create works of art algorithmically. Like, they're not told exactly what to create. Except that the algorithm creates the set of rules that the robot has to behave in in order to create the art. Exactly right. The the robot cannot, here's how I would define it. (laughs) Because the robot is incapable of breaking those rules, the robot cannot be an artist. An artist can break the rules. Hmm. Doesn't necessarily have to break the rules, but an artist has to be able to break the rules, in my mind, to be an artist. Sounds like you're incorporating the idea of free will into A little the definition bit. of an artist. <laughs> A little bit. Okay, okay. That's interesting. I have I have a favorite quote from Ray Kurzweil. Let's Hit me hear up it. Your That's quote. Ki- kind of on this topic. Uh, he, he said in um, his book, The Age of Intelligent Machines, The role of the computer is not to displace human creativity, but rather to amplify it. It is a tool like a paintbrush, but one of unique and virtually unlimited potential. Clearly, the great artists of old must have had many ideas beyond the ones that they had time to actually express. By reducing the many chores involved, computers can give artists the opportunity to realize more of their artistic visions. See, I like this idea because it's the idea that technology somehow makes us live lives of leisure. And we've all experienced the fact that despite the fact we have the Internet, computers, printers, 
we find ways to fill up those hours with more work <laughs> so that we have it suddenly magically, you know, because that was one of those promises, right? The idea that when we create this technology. Oh, we'll all be able to sit around wearing jumpsuits and eating replicator food right, and our, not have to worry about working. Our yeah. eight hours of work will be compressed into 15 minutes and then you've got the rest of the time to do whatever you want. And and that just unfortunately hasn't proven true. Uh, and we, we have a little thing here about what is the future of art? What's it going to look like? And I would argue that art is always a a product of the time and culture that it comes from, not necessarily uh, a product to the point where you can trace it directly. But, you know, artists come from somewhere. Artists come from that time and culture uh, that that was around when they started getting the inspiration to create whatever it was they were going to create. And because we can't really predict what the future culture and times are going to be like, we can't even possibly imagine what art is going to be like. I would say that technology will continue to play an important role in art, and we may see an increasing direct involvement of technology inside art, uh, not just producing it. Uh, sure, right. Um, you know, given that, that art is a reaction to the culture and that it creates reactions within the culture, it's, it's a cyclical thing. It's yeah. definitely not separate and, you know, nor would nor would I want to try to separate it. So. Yeah, you wouldn't. You know, I, this is what I have to say to that angry Joe from ages ago about how we should stick with the tried and true methods. I mean, that ultimately you you can see lots of skill and lots of interpretation and lots of expression that way, but you're also limiting expression that way. There could be artists out there who could thrive with tools that are well beyond what the traditional artist might use that could end up affecting us deeply on an emotional level that uh, that otherwise would be unable to express themselves because the, the tools they want to use are considered uh, verboten in the world of art hmm. with a capital A. Uh, and I have a follow-up question from our Duchamp discussion at the beginning of this episode. And this is the question I have for you guys. What do you think? Do you think now that we're in the era of digital, digital video and digital uh, photography, and we're getting further and further away from film, and film is always, you know, like, like motion picture film is a series of pictures that when played together very, very quickly produces the illusion of movement, Right. Do you think the further we get away from film being that pervasive medium, the less people will be able to identify with Duchamp's nude descending a staircase number two? Because now we don't. Kids today. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but Teddy Roosevelt never had the experience of watching a uh, a show on Netflix glitch up and freeze (laughs) in the middle of several consecutive frames. Right, but he also probably never saw that many films at that time either. Well, no, no, I'm just saying that if he had seen that, I think that kids of tomorrow, unless Netflix gets its act together, will be just fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm blaming it all on you, Netflix. I don't know. I think digital video is really going to... Uh, it makes me think of how Quentin Tarantino uh, uh, talks about digital film. He prefers or digital video. He much prefers actual physical film to digital video because mm. he thinks of that as the series of photographs that create the illusion of movement. I mean, maybe I don't understand how digital video works. I thought that was the same thing. Not at all. No. You know what? It's OK, Joe. I'll tell you all about it in a great episode of Tech Stuff. Another podcast series you guys should be listening to if you don't already. But since that is well beyond the parameters of this discussion here, I'm going to open up the question to our listeners. What do you guys think? Do you think that things like the the technological advancement 
can mean that we might be distanced from the original vision of artists to the point where a piece of art that once had no meaning because the technology was too new then had a meaning, meaning because the technology became more familiar. Could it, in fact, lose its meaning over time again as we go beyond that technology? It's, That's an interesting question. It's a fun question. Uh, another question. Hey, have you guys created any art that has been dependent upon technology that you would like to share with us? Because if you have, I totally want to see it. Yeah, and you should definitely share that on our Facebook page. You can also contact us on Twitter or Google+. That would be another great place to share your art. Uh, our handle at all three of those is FW Thinking. So come on, be part of the audience that lets us know exactly what you want and share your work with us because we're really interested to see what you've come up with. And uh, we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.